My name is George Claude. Can you hear me all right this morning? Oh, hearing it come through the speakers. My name is George Claude. I am an elder candidate here at Christ Church Carbondale. And now I'm blessed to be opening with you this morning the ancient Hebrew story of Esther, chapter 4, verse 1. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. My priorities this morning are that we glorify God and enjoy Him together by grappling faithfully with this sacred text of Scripture, interpreting it as accurately as we can, and grasping the goodness of God in His Word. I trust that the Holy Spirit will guide us to respond, whether by faith or repentance or joy, or reflection. I'm trusting him to do his work through his word this morning. Now, one of the ways we can grapple faithfully with this text is to take a step back and re-examine this book as a whole for just a second. First, we're going to do that. We're going to examine the biblical and historical context of what's happening here. And then we're going to zero in on our section. And we're going to walk through these verses together. Now, this very story of Esther was written to encourage confused and beaten down Jewish people. This all happened five centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Israelites were just starting to come home from their exile. They were struggling to raise the temple back up and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra is going to happen about 20 years after Esther. And Nehemiah is going to happen about 30 years after the events in Esther. So this, again, is to encourage these confused and beaten down Jewish people. The tale of Esther was meant to help them and explain the origin, the annual feast of Purim that they were starting to observe. The Hebrews, they were trying and they were failing to rebuild their lives. And they were also having an incredibly difficult time even keeping the law codes. Yes, Esther married a pagan king. And many other Jews, even in Jerusalem at the time, were marrying the locals, marrying idol-worshipping, non-Jewish spouses. This is a big problem. And in Ezra, in his book, he was going to discover all this was happening to his own frustration. So many Jews were failing to keep Sabbaths and failing to fund sacrifices and Levitical practices. No one at this time was doing a great job in keeping the law. But really, had they ever? Was this not why they were exiles in the first place? The entire Old Testament is the story of God's people as a whole failing and acting faithless. And yet, despite all of this, God is still faithful. God's people can't keep his laws in our flesh. We can't resist idolatry. We can't even resist our own pride. Yet despite this, God will not let his people go. That's important to understand this morning. God is faithful even when we're not. The story of Esther from beginning to end was meant to illustrate that. And it also shows that God doesn't just show up in miracles. Often, God is faithfully at work in circumstances in decisions. God works through instruments we don't expect, through people we wouldn't expect. 
And God can glorify himself through events other people meant for their own glory. It's, it's much like in the book of Genesis, in the very beginnings of our Bibles. There's a character named Joseph. Joseph's 11 brothers, they're resentful of him for various reasons. And out of a desire for retribution, they sell him into slavery. At the end of the story, Joseph is free, and he's second in command to Pharaoh. Now his brothers, they're afraid he's still resentful against them, and they're worried about him seeking his own retribution. But Joseph, when he hears about this, says, no, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Human beings can act in self-interest, and yet all the while God can be at work in events. And that's what Esther is. Esther is a series of great reversals brought about by God. And we're going to go over a few of those reversals this morning. And Esther is also a story of feasting and fasting. Most of the significant events in this story happen either during a feast or a fast. The first feast, chapter 1. And its purpose was for the king of Persia to brag on his own greatness. A power play. In arrogance, he puts pressure on his queen to show off for the fellas. And she refuses. In a great reversal, the king is humiliated. And despite showing off all his precious riches, he now has to cast aside what was most precious to him, his beautiful queen. This was in God's hands. God was taking the king down a notch, and God was making room for an Israelite advocate to appear on the scene. So the next feast, that's when Ahasuerus selects a brand new queen named Esther. The king meant for this feast to celebrate Esther, his replacement queen. But God's people, we can view the feast differently. God was at work behind the scenes, giving this Jewish woman favor with everyone in the palace. God was positioning both Esther and her cousin Mordecai to protect their people. This feast was put on for Esther's glory. And we can now look back on this feast and give God glory. Then an evil man named Haman is promoted to power. He loves his power so much that when Mordecai spurns him, he plots a massacre. Haman manages to persuade the king to have every Jew from Susa to Jerusalem killed that next march, killing an entire people group to get back at Mordecai. And why the wait? Why that next march? Because Haman was a superstitious man. He believed in letting the fates decide when he could move forward with his plans. So for months, Haman had his followers cast some dice called pure or poor, and the dice decided that in March, he would carry out his malicious plans. Little did Haman know that as Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So there's two great reversals already. Haman thought he was deciding when Israel's enemies would overcome the Jewish people, when really God was deciding when the Jewish people would get relief from their enemies. 
and giving them until next March would turn out to be the perfect amount of time for them to be ready. So right now, at the end of chapter 3, Haman was celebrating with the king with drinks while the kingdom was scared and confused. But later, God would reverse this story so that Haman would be scared and in turmoil while Susa and the kingdom are going to celebrate. But that reversal hasn't come yet. And that brings us to Esther 4. Read along with me at verse 1, if you would. We're going to go verses 1 to 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther and Mordecai lived in Susa. In the present day, that's Iran. Not far from the Iraq border, and somewhat close to Baghdad. And the Persian Empire had a courier system. Men on horseback carrying news. Incredibly efficient. So all the copies of this proclamation would quickly make their way from Iran to Jerusalem. All these Hebrews are getting this news. And Mordecai reads through the edict himself, and he is rightfully horrified. He rips his clothes, dons a burlap sack with armholes, throws ashes on himself, weeps loudly and bitterly in public. God's people across the empire are in mourning, fasting, lamenting, hopefully praying. He goes up to the palace dressed down like this, and Mordecai can't get in. You're not allowed to be in the king's court in such obvious distress to be wearing a sack. King Ahasuerus and Esther live in a bubble, and the king doesn't want commoners with their sob stories to bother him. So there's a dress code to help filter these people out. And it's not just Mordecai who's lamenting like this. Jewish people all over the empire are reacting in the same way. It says here that Mordecai put on ashes. Ashes, they come from burned down homes, conquered cities laying in ruins, like Jericho. And if you're a Hebrew living at this time, and reading this horrible edict, that's how your life feels right now. Desolation. Ruins. This way of symbolizing utter grief is echoed throughout the Old Testament. It makes me think of the book of Job. So there's an ancient book of Job. It comes right after Esther in our Bibles. The title character, Job, is a man who has everything. And the next day... He had nothing. His family wiped out, wealth stolen, even health now taken from him as his body is suddenly covered in sores. And in Job 2.8, it 
It says that this poor man, overwhelmed by these events, sat silently among the ashes, scraping himself with broken pottery. And in Esther, in this book, this is how they feel. Many Jews across the Persian Empire feel crushed. And they're both wearing ashes and laying in ashes. And many of them are wearing sackcloth. Just like ashes, this is an ancient practice too. It goes back all the way to Genesis, at least 2000 BC. There's a character in that book named Jacob who has 11 sons. When Jacob heard the false story that his favorite son, Joseph, had been killed by a wild animal, he tore his garments. He put on sackcloth in his grieving, and he refused to be comforted by his family. Sackcloth is made from animal hair, like black woven hair from a goat. So it's coarse, and it's itchy, and it's uncomfortable to have hanging off your body all day. Not meant for clothes. This stuff is best for sacks of flour. You wouldn't wear it to a wedding, but that's appropriate because this is no time to celebrate. And in Esther, that's what Mordecai puts on as he weeps openly through the marketplace. And when you tear your clothing, you normally rip it open at the chest. You're making a public statement about your grief, and it was costly. Nice clothes were expensive then. We didn't have a Walmart with $10 shirts. There's also a clue that can give us better insight into the meaning of torn clothing in the book of Joel. In Joel 2, God is calling his people to repent, and he says to them, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Rend your hearts and not your garments. So the point of torn clothing is to represent a truly torn heart. And that's a thread that ties God's people in 500 BC to his global church full of Gentiles in 2019 AD. We don't have to import every cultural marker in order to identify with the Jewish people here. If you've ever lost someone precious, like Jacob lost his son Joseph, or if your world has come crashing down all at once, like Job's did, or if your eyes are opened to see your own sin or the sin in this world, which is the case for every Christ follower in this room, then you know what it means to have a rightly broken heart. You know what it means to grieve. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel's book, the little minor prophet book in the back of the Old Testament, it dealt with a time when words were being said that sounded like prayer and clothes were being ripped and ashes were being piled on, but it was all really a farce. Outward signs but no inward reality. And man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. This is just as Jesus taught in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, that even good practices like praying and fasting could be used the wrong way. 
So let's, let's be clear this morning about what all these things are and what they should be about. The reason we're supposed to pray is for petition to the Lord and communion with the Lord. The reason you're supposed to fast is because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what our King Jesus said when he was fasting in the wilderness. Spiritual fasting comes alongside prayer to intensify prayer. Now, the desired outcome of that is still communion with God or provision from God. That's the reward. So what's the reward for our weeping and our lamenting? and sackcloth and ashes and clothes tearing, what is that meant to accomplish? Much like fasting, these things are meant to come alongside prayer as gestures of grief and repentance, of humiliation, of a broken heart, a humbled spirit, a posture that rightly faces the realities of our sinfulness, our need for God, and recognizes the evil that exists in the world. A heart with that kind of posture prays really well. Jesus gave a parable in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The prideful Pharisee praises himself in his prayers. Meanwhile, the tax collector beats his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what these poor, scared people in Persia should be feeling right now. They should be seeking one reward, communion with God and provision from God. Now it's possible that Mordecai was like the people in the little book of Joel. It's possible his heart wasn't in the right place here. Because this section doesn't say Mordecai actually prayed during any of this. But even if, even if Mordecai's motives are mingled here, even if he wasn't a fully faithful Jew, even if Mordecai missed the point and he wasn't seeking mercy and comfort from God or or petitioning God to intervene, we still know that God was at work. He was at work behind the scenes of both the feasts and the fasts. And God is faithful even if the Jewish people in Persia like Esther and Mordecai were not being good law keepers, God was still giving grace and he would still protect his people. Beloved Christchurch, Jesus taught us to ask and we shall receive, to seek and we shall find, to knock and the door will be opened. Asking, seeking, Knocking. People who do these things, they're longing for something. Are you still longing? Are you still wanting those rewards? Maybe like the Jewish people often did. Maybe like I do. Maybe we say the words and we complete the gestures of prayer. Down on your knees, eyes closed. And yet you're not doing it for the reward of communion with God, provision from him. Maybe like me, your heart has often gone numb. 
and you bear all your burdens on your own. Maybe your heart, like mine, needs to be torn so I can wake up again to the joys and the sorrows of the Christian life. There is so much to rejoice over and much to lament over right now. And I should take all of that to the God who is there. May God's Spirit continue to keep us awake and longing for Him. Now, only Jesus had the perfect prayer life. And all praise to Him, His perfect life covers mine. Like Mordecai, even if my repentance is flawed, God is still pouring out grace upon grace. He's still at work. So Mordecai's prayers now, behavior is now affecting Esther. Let's keep going with verse 4 here. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. We'll stop there for now. We mentioned earlier that the king and queen lived in a bubble. Esther had no clue of the edict until now. She was just distressed about Mordecai. She's encouraging him to snap out of it. Stop making a scene. Get rid of the sack. Put on these nicer clothes. But nice things aren't enough. Trite little fortune cookie encouragements aren't enough for people in deep grief and lament. And it's not enough either to just push them to cheer up or argue them out of grief. When Job lost everything in his story, his friends came and sat with him, and they tried arguing him out of his grief, and that did not go well. We, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And in the darkest moments, we need the weightiest truths. We need God's mercy. We need the hope that God will intervene in the world. We need to know that he will make things right, even if not yet. So Mordecai isn't holding back. The wheels have been turning in his mind. And he's realized that he, an accountant at the king's gate, he can't move the needle. But Esther, she may be the only perfect person perfectly positioned to have the king's ear. Mordecai has the sense that this may be the deliverance God has prepared. And he's leveraging that opportunity with everything he's got. Which is why Mordecai commands Esther to go to the king. Let's continue with verse 10. 
Then Esther spoke to Hathash and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Mordecai sent Hathach back to Esther, commanding her to plead their cause to the king. And for the first time we've ever seen in this book, Esther pushes back against Mordecai. Any other time we've ever seen her, she's always been very obedient to him, always been very listening to him. Here she pushes back. She doesn't want anything bad to happen to Mordecai or her people, but she knows that obeying Mordecai here could easily cost her life. King Ahasuerus supposedly loves Esther. She's his favorite of all the women, but he hasn't seen her in a month. What if she's fallen out of favor? What if she catches Ahasuerus on a bad day like Queen Vashti did? Esther feels she's risking everything. But Mordecai gives her another lens to look through. Esther, you're likely going to die either way. So either you bravely step up and then die from the king's wrath, or Haman's day of slaughter comes and they come for you along with the rest of us. Your secret can't protect you. Mordecai then makes two other points. The closest this book gets to teaching theology. Here's what's being implied. First, Esther, if you don't step up, deliverance is still coming. Amen. And then second, who knows whether you weren't positioned here for this very moment. Now, Mordecai doesn't explicitly mention the Lord in any of these verses. But there's no other way this works. The universe and the fates, they don't care about Israel. Yahweh cares about Israel. God is Israel's deliverer. He promised to preserve them. And he is the Lord of all providence. So Mordecai says, who knows? And when we're confronted with the idea that God is sovereign, the idea that God is at work here through all of these events, it doesn't delete all mystery. 
We already mentioned Job once this morning. In that book, Job is sitting in ashes. His friends are trying to argue him out of his grief. And Job can't take it anymore. He calls out for God to answer him. Why did I have to lose everything? And God does respond. But Job doesn't receive an exhaustive answer to all his questions. The mystery is real. And Mordecai, he can't see where God's going with all of this. And he doesn't have to. In Scripture, there's always some sense of who knows when it comes to God's sovereignty. There's much we don't know. That's okay. We can trust God with mystery because we can trust God, period. We don't know all his secrets, but we can know his character. Now, Esther has a choice. Hide from the world, stand idly by, or act. This decision is the turning point of her life, the turning point of this book. This decision is why we're reading the book of Esther this morning. Whether her motives are mingled or not, God is behind the scenes. And I think God's hand was in these events, giving Esther courage. So she calls Mordecai and the Jews to fast three days. It doesn't say that the people prayed, yet again, only that they fasted. But I'm going to presume here that Esther is hoping they pray for her. Pray she'll find favor with the king. But even if she doesn't, and this is her end, she would rather go down this way. If I perish, I perish. She's counted the cost, and she's now resolved to do the right thing, no matter what happens. What would life be like if everyone was the type who resolved to do the right thing, no matter the cost? I tend to think human beings would be far more generous, willing to cut off their own hands rather than use those hands for sin, willing to go to the nations and give them the gospel, even if it means death, willing to adopt and pour ourselves out for our little ones rather than neglect or sacrifice our little ones for our own convenience. We're looking here at a shadow. It points to the substance. And that substance made a very similar decision. He prayed in a garden 500 years after this story, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now Jesus had a real choice. And he resolved to do the right thing, even if that meant laying down his life. May we be like him in this. Not to earn God's favor, Christ died for our sins, paying our debt. We already have God's favor. No. May we be like Jesus in this because of what he's already done for us. Now let's see what happens to Esther. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. 
And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. We'll stop there for a second. The phrase, even to the half of my kingdom, figure of speech, yet it still carries the point well. Whatever you want, my queen, it's yours. She won favor. And Esther's story and Joseph's story in Genesis, they have so much in common. So many grand reversals in both stories. Listen, in the first feast of this story, Queen Vashti faces the king's wrath. After the second fast of this story, Esther receives the king's grace. And the favor wasn't just an accident. She didn't just happen by chance to catch him on a good day. This favor is God saving Esther's life. It's as Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Just as in Genesis, when God gave Joseph favor with Potiphar and the prison warden and Pharaoh, just as God gave Joseph favor then, God's given Esther favor now with Ahasuerus. Let's go on to verse 4. Verse 4, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Verse 7. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Esther makes her request. The king says, what would you like? And Esther says, I'd like a private dinner with you and Haman tonight. Now, King Ahasuerus knows she wouldn't risk her life just to set up a dinner date. She must want something more than that. But by God's grace, she's charmed him. And she seems to have him wrapped around her finger at this point. So he's being patient and a little curious. That night, he asks again, so what's this really about? And she responds much the same way as before. This is really about you and Haman having dinner with me again tomorrow. Then I'll tell you what's on my mind. That's twice now that she could have just come out and said it. Yet she didn't. My question is, is she holding out because of wisdom or fear? I don't know for sure. Yet I do know that God can use both. Every feast and fast in this story so far may have been done with mingled motives. But as we look back, God has been glorifying himself through each one. And right now, who knows if God might be softening the king's heart through each of these interactions. 
One other thing I'm sure of, this story has a great narrator. It's not just Esther who's taking her time and raising the dramatic tension here. It's the spirit-inspired storyteller. The narrator is setting us, the audience, on the edge of our seats as we head towards the climax of this story. Let's finish with Haman's section. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited with her by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. It's unusual that Haman's invited to be third wheel for two dinner dates in a row, and he suspects nothing. His first impulse is to flatter himself and assume this is just more evidence that Haman is really well-liked. He must be awesome. He's feeling on top of the world right now. And then there's Mordecai. There's Mordecai. The one person in his life who still dares insult him. Maybe Mordecai is still just being prideful and stubborn. Or perhaps Mordecai simply recognizes this edict's already written, so there's no point kissing Haman's boots right now. It could be the conscience issue is real, and he can't bow. We're never told for sure. But Haman wants to kill Mordecai right now. Maybe... Maybe it's because Haman's truly a coward at heart. He holds back and he restrains himself from trying anything. I know that Haman's never gotten his hands dirty so far. He's managed to get his way mostly by manipulating other people and having them do his things for him. So Haman instead, he goes home and he tries to cheer himself up by bringing his friends and his family together and fishing for compliments all night, bragging on himself, feeling invincible, then confessing that Mordecai is the one thorn that won't go away. And I wonder if he was just looking for an excuse, the thought of, I can't do this right now, but if I got a crowd to, you know, riled up against this guy, maybe they could help me justify it in my own head. His wife and friends, just like he suspected being incredibly righteous people, they all suggest that Haman just killed the man. And then Haman can enjoy feasting the next night burden-free. What wonderful friends and family to have. And you don't like this guy? Just kill him. And then when you're partying tomorrow, you don't have to think about it anymore. Isn't it? It's the perfect plan. Haman, true to form, loves the idea. And he spends the night setting up a gallows 
a tall impaling stake. This image is preparing us for the great reversal of this story. It seems that although Haman meant this gallows for evil, God meant it for justice. It reminds you of Psalm 7, which talks about men like Haman. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. He makes a pit, digging it out, and then falls into the hole that he has made. The writer of this story is telling us, take a look at this impaling stake. Take it in. It's going to come back up later. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. It's about God's faithfulness, illustrated through great reversals. A poor Jewish peasant becomes the queen of Persia. A potential tragedy becomes an annual celebration called Purim. Prideful Haman is going to be humiliated. And a humbled Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes is one day going to be exalted to Persian nobility. The reversals in this story are stunning. And they're just shadows. The substance is so much greater. Psalm 118 talks about Jesus when it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What an instance of turning things on their head. Philippians 2 teaches about the great reversal from Jesus' humility to his exaltation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And much like Haman set up his gallows and set in motion the very events that would create his own downfall, the kingdom of darkness killed Jesus Christ on a cross and by doing so sealed its own doom. The English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, sin virtually committed suicide when it slew the Savior, for his death became its death. And praise God, although we are represented among the enemies of God who crucified Jesus, he saved us, turning rebels into sons and enemies of God into friends of God. The greatest reversals of all are those in the gospel, what we believe and what we're still waiting for. And we're waiting for Christ's kingdom, waiting for justice to be done. That's a part of our lament, waiting on our broken bodies to be fully healed, waiting for Satan to be hung on his own gallows, waiting to see the God who we've been longing for with our own eyes. And by God's grace, may those great reversals come soon. Let's pray. God, you are sovereign over our feasts and our fasts, over our important decisions in life, over bringing these great reversals to pass that we long for. And we long for you, our creator and our king. May we ask so that we'll receive, seek so that we'll find, and knock so the door will be opened. May our hearts long for your presence and your provision. All glory to you, you have always been faithful despite your people's sins. We're not holding on to you, but you're holding on to us. 
I pray you've been glorified through your word this morning. Receive honor and glory from us now as we sing. In Jesus' name and because of his work and authority, we ask all of this. Amen.